All right, I'm standing in Titanic Quarter. I have Titanic Belfast right in front of me. North, uh, northwest, I have Titanic Hotel where we have stayed. It's been amazing. To my direct west, kind of southwest, I've got the Harlan and Wolf Cranes and the Titanic Studios. I can see the Game of Thrones set. Um, right to my immediate east, more cranes dockyards, uh, and then <laughs> the dry docks for Titanic and Olympic. Uh, there are still girders up. Those are the original. Uh, some people have been saying that they are uh, not any docents, uh, but just some <laughs> random people I've encountered. But I asked someone who worked at Titanic Belfast, those are not the original. But what's really amazing is the outline of the ships in each dry dock is a silver beam that outlines the entire ship uh, and shape of it. And there's also some painted squares and circles on the concrete where you can get a sense of uh, promenade deck or where the funnels were. It's really amazing. And right now there is in the middle of the dry dock for Olympic and Titanic, uh, some stone that's uh, original part of the dock. It's the dry dock has been filled in and I, you know, to, to do the episode that this is probably playing on, I'll be doing some research about how they have preserved these dry docks. But there are some original uh, block concrete, it looks like right in the middle of them. And up against them, they have some glass walls. And on those glass walls are the names of those lost from the crew is the one I'm looking at right now, looking at Thomas Andrews name, but every crew member. And if you go to the very beginning, uh, I'm just going to read the inscription in memory of, uh, oh, I'm sorry, uh, I should mention that this is a separate panel. Uh, this one is in memory of the eight men who died during the construction and launch of Titanic. William Clark, James Dobbin, John Kelly, Robert James Murphy, Samuel J. Scott, unknown, 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 three unknown men. And the quote, we raised a monument of fame upon these banks and thus unfurled an honored scroll to Ulster's name, unequaled yet around the world. And to stand at this pivot point and see all of this around me and to think of the men who worked in this very space and built Titanic. Some lost their hearing building Titanic because the clanging was so loud. Eight men lost their lives. Men worked for 11, 12 hour days, uh, putting their bodies on the line to build the ship. And then it just disappeared. And it's to stand right here and to think about all that is, I know that it's a, a privilege to be able to travel. If you are able to make it here, it is you are a Titanic person. This is it. This is the moment. This is the this is the place to make it to. Absolutely. I'm Ellie Beatles, and this is Unsinkable, the Titanic podcast. This is a walk in Belfast.
The histories of Ireland and Northern Ireland are an organic drama that no writer could have mustered on their own accord. I think that's obvious. Gaelic culture on its own would warrant multiple volumes, an entire podcast on its own. The same with Viking interactions and conquests, the coastal history of conflict of a nation and then two whole nations, the Norman invasion and the nearly 800 years of English involvement in Ireland. I've recently been researching Roanoke uh, for my other podcast that's coming soon, and the first colonization by the English in America has been a topic in my head. And I'll tell you, I had no idea, as a side note, how brutal the colonization of Ireland by Britain was even previous to the history of the New World. There is so much we don't get in history class here in the United States. Of course, the conflicts between Protestant and Catholic throughout Ireland and what would become Northern Ireland as well. And obviously, Belfast sits in Northern Ireland, cuddled by the sea in the upper eastern corner. But these conflicts deserve their own books, podcasts, uh, all of their own attention as well. So I just want to be clear, this episode won't do justice to the labyrinthine. Is that how you say it? labyrinthine, I think so, history of how modern-day Belfast became Belfast, the troubles, the religious and ethnic and nationalist conflict that dominated life from the 60s to the 90s and just this past century. That's recent history, and that alone, again, is a whole topic, uh, a whole world to uncover and to illuminate. I want to know more. I need to know more and read more, but this episode is not about that. This episode is about the place Titanic was born in conjunction with it, uh, about the men who built it, a bit of their world, and about how the ship is being memorialized in the place that it was constructed. And I'm going to do that by telling you how I experienced Belfast, which was largely on foot. I was insanely lucky to be in Belfast for four glorious days in August of this year, 2022. Honestly, I wish I could teleport myself back right this instant. It's a vibrant city. It's resilient beyond belief, obviously, but it's also just gorgeous. We drove in after circling the whole of Ireland in a tiny rental car with no air conditioning. There was a heat wave on, and the entire time we were in, you know, a country known for its verdant, misty green, its, you know, warm your wet limbs by the fire because you're cold and the like. To be in a place like that, we had maybe 20 minutes of rain and maybe three nights where a sweatshirt was required, but no complaints. We still got to see all of the green and we got to see it more clearly, the beauty of the isles, like the blaskets off the western coast of Dingle. Clearer, locals told us, than most people get to see them. The drip so far had been frenetic and absolutely amazing. A few days in Cove on the Titanic Trail. I did an episode about some of that a few weeks ago. Cold swimming at Inch Beach, uh, late nights at the hotel pub in Dingle where the kids had no bedtime. Uh, the drive to Adderghoul where the Titanic Memorial lays in the shadow of a mountain and just a few miles from the sea. 
and I'll be doing an episode about that. So many incredible meals that I began logging even, you know, what we ate in a journal. I sent my father a video of me consuming this crumbly, amazing apple pastry in a car because he loves apple pie. An entire boiling afternoon in a Bushmills cemetery looking for my ancestors to no avail. Ireland is a land of kind and compassionate people, cold beer, a million walks, a thousand castles. I'll be covering a lot more from our time there in the coming months. On this day in question, August 9th, I believe it was, we were excited to cross into Northern Ireland as well. Though our first few moments were spent harried because we realized we were in a car that measured kilometers per hour and Northern Ireland inexplicably uses miles per hour. So we darted down the highways the best we could and into Belfast, which has modern looking suburbs. And then suddenly you're right on the water, right in the center of everything. I looked over and saw the yellow Harland and Wolf cranes and I actually truly squealed in the passenger seat. I could not believe that we were there. There is so much, though, to Belfast before Harland and Wolf, before Titanic, and much of much of which I didn't even know before this trip. Belfast grew up around 1609, when James, king of England, began settling Englishmen and Scotsmen and families in Ulster. There was a land grant to a man named Sir Arthur Chichester. Chichester? <laughs> So hard to say. C H I C H E S T E R. Uh, And this included Belfast Castle, which he rebuilt in 1611. And this is often the case in places like this in, say, the 17th century. A small town grew up around the castle. Belfast was run with an official called a sovereign and then 12 burgesses, which were essentially merchants. And this was in the early 17th century. It was a small town at this point, a population of about a thousand historians guess, but it was full of people working, wool, hides, harvesting grain, making butter, uh, salting meats. All of these things were exported to places like England, Scotland, France. Later in the 17th century, uh, Belfast began to become the North American colonies to trade with them as well. Uh, Tobacco was imported from the North American colonies to Belfast, as it was in many places in the world. Uh, Sugar was coming in from the West Indies, and then it would be refined in Belfast. By the end of the 17th century, Belfast had, historians guess, about 1,500 to 2,000 people. And it was populated by French Protestants, many of whom were running away from religious persecution in their own homeland. And it was some of these French who introduced linen weaving to Belfast, and this would be a really key introduction. Uh, Other industries were pretty typical of the time, like brewing, rope making, sail making, which, you know, being by the coast, that made sense. So, In the late 18th century, going to jump ahead a little bit, Belfast grew really fast. It was, the the population was jumping quickly. And I think, let's see here, by 1800, I'm looking at my list of data, sorry. By 1800, yeah, a population of 20,000 people. 
that's significant during that time period. There was an increasing uh, drive locally to produce linen that would be exported from Belfast. And the linen was actually typically woven inside people's houses in the countryside. That was sort of the system that uh, was going on. There were not factories for the linen yet. Shipbuilding, ding, 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 something of incredible interest to us, began probably sometime around 1790. Uh, So you have a city that is on the coast and growing because of industries like linen. So you see the sort of, from what I can gather, kind of concurrent growth of those two industries and really starts to prosper. Uh, Queen's Bridge built in 1843. Building of bridges, very significant during this period. It really spoke to a desire to invest in infrastructure. You have Queen's University formed in 1845. Uh, A public library built in 1890. Grand Opera House built in 1895. So Belfast is on the upswing. In the early 19th century, though, it's really important to remember that, you know, pre-sanitation in any modern sense, there is in cities um, a lot of, unfortunately, pollution, filth, uh, water is not clean, a lot of the poorer neighborhoods would be just absolutely appalling. I mean, you see this in London, you see this in Dublin, you see this in, you know, cities in, you know, what would become America as well. The the Lagan River, which we'll talk about here again in a minute, was used as a sewer. And this was actually really common as well. So you see in the mid-1800s, you see outbreaks of typhus. I'm going to talk a lot about disease and disease spread during... Um, even well, even earlier than this, when I talk about Roanoke on my other podcast and colonization. Uh, but you know, disease, it's easy to forget that, you know, prior to, I don't know, 1900. I mean, if you look at any historical process, if you look at any place, it's really going to be disease and the spread of disease that is the number one I mean, to begin with, killer of people, but also just the number one contributor to sort of how, you know, industry ebbs and flows, an economy ebbs and flows, a culture ebbs and flows. I mean, look at the plague in Europe. Anyway, this is like a much uh, longer durée and a much deeper history than I can get into now, but it's just important to remember. And I think since we live in COVID times and over the past few years, we as a society, again, have been forced to think about all of these things. It's just so interesting, uh, I think, to all of us. So conditions improved, as they did in most cities, towards the very end of the 19th century. And this is when the shipbuilding industry in Belfast really began to boom. And the Harlan and Wolf Shipyard, which is going to be our big focus today, was founded in 1862. So the port of Belfast, like I mentioned, was growing rapidly and uh, investing in its infrastructure. The River Lagan was really shallow and winding. So in 1841, there was a channel put in to bypass one of its like curvatures. And I am relying full disclosure on some 
technical explanations that I found on Wikipedia for some of these things or some of the Titanic um, encyclopedia entries because I, as most of you know, I've talked about this before, from a technical aspect, a lot of this is new to me as I learn about the construction of ships and naval history in this way. So, and, and also if you go to Belfast, there are posters and, you know, mounted uh, public history displays throughout public areas and also in the museum that explain a lot of this really, really well. So the city has done an amazing job of implanting the shipbuilding history and the naval history as a part of their public history walks, which is, again, get to that more in a minute, but the walking aspect of Titanic Quarter in Belfast is is really uh, its most important aspect. So Queen's Island was formed by digging this bypass of one of the curves of the river. It was then extended in 1849, and that was named Victoria Channel. And all of this naming of Queens Island, Victoria Channel, it was, and you see this in Cove, when it got named Queenstown for a period, it was named after uh, Queen Victoria visited. So that was such a big deal when the queen came to visit that you would see towns literally change their name or name hospitals or very important places after the queen. Uh, the There was a rope-making industry that flourished alongside shipbuilding. Linen was, though, really the dominant industry in Belfast. And if you go to Titanic Belfast, the museum, uh, I'll get to it more in a minute, but I keep saying that. There's so much to come. But uh, there is a wonderful exhibit that starts Titanic Belfast that gives you such an amazing sense of what Belfast history is prior to Titanic. So there is also this very problematic aspect of the linen making in that they would often employ children to do some of this weaving because their hands are so small. And that is as brutal as it sounds. And a lot of children were injured really badly or killed in the process. So, you know, it's it's um it's always here, right? When we talk about the history of industrialization or economic growth, there is good and then there's also inherent in it the very, very bad. Um, it's a very complex conversation to have. And yeah, you see in Belfast this transition from these more homespun practices into industrialization. And it's also a reminder that things like child labor laws are a lot more recent than we want to believe that they are. They're really uh, in many uh, first world countries, only about 100, 120, maybe 140 years old. So something to keep in mind. Uh, but from the mid-19th century, the linen industry was uh, very much industrialized, as things were all over the world. And the weaving went to factories. And I do believe that the child labor was still going on in those too. And you will see that be a very big uh, problem and then political issue in the United States during the same period as well. Moving into the shipbuilding, though, in Harland and Wolf. In 1858, a man named Edward James Harland bought the small shipyard on Queen I Queen's Island uh, from a man he worked for named Robert Hickson. And after buying the shipyard, he made his assistant, a man named Gustav, Gustav Wolf, a partner in the company that would become Harland 
and Wolf. One of their big innovations was replacing the wooden upper decks with iron ones, which would increase the overall durability of these ships. And it gave hulls a flatter bottom and a squarer cross section. And again, I'm relying on my technical sources here for these descriptions. Uh, But this increased the ship's capacities. I I don't have time to go into a super detailed history of the whole company. I don't think that you want me to, probably not. Uh, But in 1895, William Peary, a man whose name we all know likely, became the chairman of the company. And he would stay that until his death in 1924. Thomas Andrews enters our unsinkable picture for, I don't know, one of the first times, which is uh, a real... (laughs) Real problem. I've really let you guys down. We have not talked about Thomas Andrews uh, very much at all. A little bit when I interviewed Gareth Russell for uh, the book club episode on Ship of Dreams. But I have to be honest, I've sort of been avoiding talking about him as I do with a lot of the most complex people and topics because it is so much to manage to uh, look into all sources <laughs> about Andrews. And uh, he was, but I will, I will be doing a lot more on him. Um, he obviously would go on to design much of Titanic, but he was a general manager and head of the drafting department as of 1907. And he was, as many of you probably know, William Peary's nephew. And if you want to get a better sense here of Andrews and his relationship to Irish history and Belfast and some of his background, I really actually recommend that you go back to Gareth Russell's book, Ship of Dreams. There's some great material in there. I went back to that book myself for this episode, and I constantly do. It's really one of the best. So uh, in the early 1900s, Belfast is a growing, vibrant city because of all of this. By 1910, it has a population of 400,000 people. And in the drawing rooms of a Harlington Wolf, they're concocting these ships of dreams. The Olympic, the Titanic, uh, the Britannic, originally conceived as the gigantic. But Harlington Wolf had a crystal diamond uh, gold reputation for building beautiful ships and they had a contract with white star line there is the creation moment myth right i mean who knows if it's actually true but this uh myth of you know one night at dinner in uh 1909 i think um that bruce ismay you know chairman of white star line and william perry sit down over some cocktails, and they decide to go for it. They decide to build these three sister ships that will be the last word in luxury and not the last word in speed. That debunks some myths, but the last word in luxury. So 1907 to 1910, you just imagine that these men who worked from uh, for Harlan and Wolf, including Thomas Andrews, are bent over their drawing tables in the drawing rooms of Harlan and Wolf. And we've seen these iconic photos, right? You've seen the iconic photos of the drawing rooms. Look it up online where it's the archways and the light coming in from the ceiling. And these men are bent over. And the detailing on the plans for a ship like Titanic is insane. I mean, if you made... And, and again, they're doing this without, remember, 
any computers, any computing technology. They are doing this by hand. And the measurements are so accurate or have to be so accurate. You mess up something by, a, I don't know, a tenth of a centimeter. That's going to translate on an actual building project, on an actual ship, into disaster, into things not fitting together right, into things not being constructed right. So the drafting of the plans of Titanic, I think, is something that's sort of lost in the story that prior to construction starting, prior to this ship sailing, that's what it begins with, right? These drawings. And... I had seen these photos before, uh, and I had never really thought about what it must be like to be in Harlan and Wolf during those times. So construction of Titanic began on March 31st, 1909, in Harlan and Wolf shipyards. The Olympic had begun about three months before, so as most of you probably know, they were essentially constructed right next to each other. They were neighbors and almost completely identical. This project, this construction of Titanic would be one of, an Olympic as well, would be one of the most epic things to ever happen in Belfast. People would come from all over to see this construction happening. And the really key thing is that no, there was no facility that existed at this time to build something this big, this large of a ship. And so Harland and Wolf actually had to build these two new slipways. They, um, they tore apart three smaller ones to build two bigger ones. And so they constructed these two huge gantries that had moving cranes and lifts. And these were called the Errol gantries. And if you go to Titanic Belfast, they explain all of this so beautifully. It's such a testament to a wonderful commitment to public history, but they really make it relatable. Uh, there also was a 200-ton floating crane uh, at this time to lift the boilers and other huge items so that they could place them down into the ship. And just from a technical stance, if you're like me, and sometimes these concepts are hard to visualize in your brain, a gantry is a crane system that maneuvers over the top of the ship in the dockyard and you know, conveys materials and workers so that they can get around the construction sh- construction site up and down and over, get where they need to go to do this laborious work, this back-breaking work. Men of all ages, from very young teenagers up to more veteran workers in the shipyards, are working on construction of these two ships, thousands of people every day. And they are required to clock in with this system of little wooden blocks that clocked them in. They had to, you know, be allotted time to go to the bathroom. I think they had 15 minutes throughout every day to go to the bathroom. So they had to make sure that they uh, use that wisely. So I don't know. I imagine there was just a lot of urine everywhere on that construction site. I'm sorry. That's sort of gross. But I mean, they probably saved that 15 minutes for another bodily function, I would imagine. So, uh, but it was pretty brutal, the management of these workers, you know, down to the minute. But there was, there was a lot to do. And that's not, 
that sounded bad. That's not to justify the treatment of the workers in any way, shape, or form. Uh, but it was, you know, it, they were paid, um, you know, pretty standard for the time. But these were jobs that people who did not have an education and came from families that had been, you know, laborers, kind of in a cycle of, you know, you came from a family that were laborers, you didn't get an education, you were considered lower class. These are the jobs that you ended up in. And it is a vicious cycle. It continues a cycle of poverty. These men would be worked to the bone. I mean, they they clock in for these long days. As soon as they clock out, they probably go home and collapse. So it's just... You know, labor history is rough. Labor history is so important, and I had um, I've had many and many professors in grad school that that focused on it. It just is it's always so depressing. But you know, we have to look depressing history right in the face. Um, so the construction of Titanic, there were twenty four double ended Scotch class boilers. And five single-ended boilers. There were six boiler rooms. I think we're all familiar with that from some other aspects. Uh, the double-ended boilers measured 20 feet long and had a diameter of 15 feet 9 inches. And they had six furnaces. The single-ended boilers were 11 feet 9 inches long, but they had the same diameter. There was, with all of these boilers firing, a horsepower of, let me see, 46 thousand horsepower it was originally titanic was originally drafted with only three funnels to serve these boilers but and you probably you probably know this is one of the sort of mythology stories white star thought that a ship this luxurious and important should have four funnels so one extra was put in that was simply for show there is this classic picture, you can find it online, of, I believe, wait, no, I'm thinking of the wrong story. Okay, no, there's no picture of this. But there is a story where when, I think it's in Cherbourg, when there's tenders going back and forth from the ship, or no, maybe is it Queenstown? This is me thinking of my anecdotes in real time. I believe it's Queenstown and people are getting on Titanic from Cove. And there's a woman that is shocked out of her mind and scared that she's seeing a ghost because she sees someone peeking out from that fourth funnel. It's like someone from the engine room with like black caked all over his face from the furnace. So uh, you could just like pop your head out of it. It was not, it wasn't functioning the fourth funnel. Let's see here. So there was a triple screw propulsion system on Titanic. And if you've seen the movie, which you better have seen the movie if you're listening to this podcast, but you know, when Rose is on the back of the stern, you can see the signs that were on Titanic about um, the danger, you know, triple screw. That's always what I think about. Um, That sign is right next to her when she's on the stern on, on the back of the ship during her suicide attempt. So, you know, all of this was to the effect of making sure that Titanic had a pace, a speed of about 22 knots. And all of this was designed with the idea of a very smooth journey in mind. The intention was for Titanic to be in peaceful, 
ride. So you could sit in the dining room, you could sit in the smoking room, you could sit on the deck with your cup of bouillon, and you would not necessarily feel all of this going on underneath you. That was the point. The point of Titanic Olympic Britannic was never to break speed records. So that is, we'll talk about it more, like just like we've talked about it before, but it, you know, that Titanic was never designed or thought of by the White Star Line to break speed records. All right, three million rivets to connect the one inch thick iron plates. The hull had 2,000 portholes. And yeah, this is, <laughs> I mean, just think about it at the time, like men's hands putting all of this together. After the sinking in the inquiries, and then this has been kind of one of the conspiracy theories over the last few decades, came this idea that the rivets and how they were put in or the metalworking might have been partially responsible for the breakage of the ship when it hit the iceberg. It's been disproven. And it left a really bad taste in the mouth of those in Belfast who had worked so hard on this ship and then had to hear of it going straight to the bottom of the ocean. All right. On May 31st, 1911, 26,000 ton hull of Titanic um, went out of the slipway in Belfast. They had to use grease and soap in the water um, to help it along. And there was, you know, borders there, a huge crowd. Uh, people from all over had come to see this. And it wasn't outfitted yet. There's nothing inside, no interiors. But uh, so this is what we walked into. This legacy of the space that Harland and Wolf occupies in Titanic Quarter now. Titanic Quarter is one of the largest urban waterfront renewal projects in the whole world. And it's only about a decade old, really. So the Titanic experience, Titanic Belfast, is obviously the centrifugal point of this. There's also 18,000 people that live and work in the quarter or around it. And there's also Titanic Studios, which has been put in the old Harlan and Wolf paint halls. It's so interesting to me, and I'll talk about it in a minute. So there is, if you can envision it, and I, I recommend looking up pictures, but Titanic Quarter is the Harlan and Wolf area where there's still activity going on. There's still ship repairs and ship making in some capacity going on. Uh, and then you have the Titanic Belfast Museum. You've got Titanic Studios where they film Game of Thrones was partially filmed there. And you've got Titanic Hotel and you've got Nomadic. And there is just this sort of circular, beautifully done walking path that takes you to all of these places. So it is an urban renewal project that is focused in on the very specific history of one thing, which is kind of cool. Belfast has not always been so devoted to the memorialization or the memory of Titanic, but with due cause. Like I said before, it's, you know, this idea that that blood, sweat, and tears, and literal bodies, because several men died during the construction of Titanic, had been put into creating this thing that was, you know, was made by Irish hands. 
It was a product of Belfast, the sons of Belfast in many ways. And then it just ended up at the bottom of the ocean on its maiden voyage. And there's resentment that comes out of that. There's emotion, there's sadness. People in Belfast likely lost people on the time. It just, you know, you think about the loss of, of Thomas Andrews and the Guarantee Group, and they were largely from Belfast. So there is mourning and there is grief, but there is also the loss of work. And when you've put your blood and your sweat and your tears into something, um, I don't know, it's just really heartbreaking to think about. And I, I would say being in Belfast, that was probably the main thought that we had. Um, it was so fun. And so much of it is is this this stunning experience and world-class experience. But I will say that was one of the the primary thoughts that ran through our heads, especially me and my husband, just that she used to be there, right there, and then she was gone. So it blew my mind to emerge from the parking garage to a world literally and figuratively in every way possible built around Titanic. Dream come girl, dream come true for me for this Titanic girl, uh, and and this was in the place that she was built. So I was beside myself. We crossed the entrance to Titanic Belfast, which I'll get to um, more here shortly, and which I was in awe of. And it's you can look at pictures, but it's it's like built with basically in the shape of four hulls of of ships, and they're meant to represent. Um, Titanic and her sisters. And so we walked across the museum sort of entry area and then straight into the lobby of Titanic Hotel Belfast, which is in the Harlan and Wolf like former shipyard offices. And and part of it is in these drawing rooms from these iconic photos. So you walk in and I, I, guys, was very giddily excited to be staying at the Titanic Hotels. And we stayed at the one in Liverpool as well. And I will talk about that in the future. Uh, but they're amazing. And and so for Titanic Hotel Belfast, you walk in and to your right is drawing room number one, which is used as an event space. And I believe you can get married there. Um, I think they host a lot of events related to the museum as well there. So that's to the right. And then to the left is drawing room number two, which is the restaurant and bar or one of the restaurants. It's kind of the more casual restaurant and the bar. And in the middle of the room is this gorgeous, gorgeous bar. Uh, top, top class bartenders too. Again, I wish I could go back right now. Um, it is just probably one of the best experiences of my life to sit there in that bar with the light streaming in, archways above me, and they have a huge model of Titanic in the middle of the room, spanning the middle of the room, to just sit there with like a whiskey ginger or a cider and to take a deep breath and realize that somehow, some way, I was sitting there in the place where Titanic was designed and that all of this money and energy had been put into memorializing Titanic because so many people are addicted to the history of this ship and addicted to telling the stories. And I mean that in a good way, a good addiction, telling the stories of the people that were lost, the stories of the people that built her and that there is a bar I'm sitting at and I can, you know, order some French fries and sit there and soak in the history, you know, 
I think there are sometimes a lot of arguments made against turning old historical spaces into restaurants or bars or hotels, but I got to tell you, I'm 100% for it. Now, it is a privilege to be able to go to these places, though I will say the Titanic hotels seem very open to tourists walking through just to get a glance. Even if you don't want to you know, buy food or drink or, or pay the money to stay there, they seem very open to people coming through and taking a look. So it, anyway, it's just pretty incredible. So the drawing room number two, best bar in Northern Ireland, from what I saw. Uh, and then we're, so we, we got settled in our room, which I I have to share, I'm going to get a little bit more casual here for a minute. I have to share one of, speaking of one of the best moments of my life. So we had been in this heat wave, we had been staying at a couple of hotels along the, just on the road that did not have air conditioning, which is obviously very common in Ireland and Northern Ireland. Most of the year you do not need it. And you can just open your window if you need some fresh air, but it was brutally hot when we were there for Ireland. So we'd had a couple of not so great nights sleep. We are spoiled Americans who put our thermostat on like 68 at home sometimes when it's super hot in Texas. Uh, So we arrive and we had these corner rooms, these connecting rooms right on the corner. My kids were in one and then my husband and I were in the other with a little connecting uh, door. And it was cold and the air was on and the linens on the bed were so soft and wonderful and the light was streaming in and we got some wine from room service. And again, I recognize the privilege and all of that. So thankful. And we're like in the room settling in. I get under this like glorious, wonderful comforter. The air condition's blowing. The TV is sat in the corner in just the perfect position for me to lay in this bed and put Irish Food Network on. And I am revealing a lot about myself right here. But I like had my glass of wine with my Irish Food Network on. I turned to my husband, John. I said, just take a picture. I need a picture of this moment of my life. And please always remember me this way. (laughs) So such a good moment. The hotel is beautiful. They are not paying me to say this. I am not related to them in any way. Beautiful. Uh, And one of the first times that we were coming back downstairs to sort of get our lay of the land, make some plans, we walk by a room that is labeled Thomas Andrews' office. And John sort of stops and points at it. And I am just paralyzed with fear of the moment almost. It seems like too much to take in. But one of the women that was working at the hotel sort of saw me be freaked out by seeing it. And she said, you know, you can come on in. You can take a look. And I'll post this video on Instagram. But yeah, got to walk into Thomas Andrews' office and there's a big portrait of him on that wall, unsurprisingly, and it was uh, really, really cool. So uh, also through our hotel window, we had this view of Titanic Studios and part of the Game of Thrones set is still up. You just like see it right there. So we're not Game of Thrones people. Please don't be mad. Um, very much respect it. Just wasn't our cup of tea. But we have a lot of friends that are Game of Thrones people. So we were frantically texting people we know to, <laughs> to show them that we were so close to what is it winter what is it i should know this game i'm gonna do some real time i hardly ever do this i try to maintain my patina of professionalisms but i'm gonna do some real time googling winter fallen winterfell sorry guys okay winterfell was right outside our hotel room which was really really freaking cool uh so yeah the the hotel was incredible 
the second day that we were there, we did our big trip to Titanic Belfast, the museum. I want to forefront this whole part of the conversation by saying that I am one of those people, full disclosure, that is insanely sad that some of the Titanic artifacts are not in Belfast. I know that when RMS Titanic Inc. was flirting with bankruptcy, there was a movement I believe James Cameron was involved with to try to get a lot of the artifacts from the ocean floor to Belfast. And I'm just going to go ahead and say it. I wish they were there. They should be there. These artifacts, I mean, they they should always be, I feel like, often taken on tour so that lots of people around the world can see them and, and they can be accessible to a lot of different groups of people. But when you go through this museum, that is the heartbreaking thing, is that you sort of get the sense that this huge museum was built to house those and then they didn't get them. And, and I don't know if that's the case, but that's sort of the feeling that you get. Uh, but it's it's so well done. There is a first floor with you know, your typical sort of cafe and gift shop and ticket offices. But then once you're in and you you get on the escalator, the elevator, and, and you start the exhibits, it's a testament to modern public history. It's so well done. The exhibits are beautiful. And like I said, they start with an exhibit on spinning and textiles, linen from Northern Ireland, kind of a sense of what Belfast was. And most of the rooms are just this immersive experience. You know, there is a room dedicated to the drafting of the plans. And so you see reflected on the floor, sort of that process. There are a lot of 3D models. There are there are some artifacts uh, here and there. I believe it was Lord Pierre, because he was Lord, eventually Lord William Peary's uh, pocket watch is there. So there are some artifacts, but not from the ocean floor, not from Titanic. But it is all about teaching the experience of what it must have been like to build Titanic. And there is a Titanic ride in the middle of the museum. Now, don't get worked up. Don't get upset. I promise you it's so beautifully done. I will tell you that my kids who were you know, emerging into the second half of a very long trip abroad. We're getting a little tired. We're getting a little titanic out, which at ages six and seven, at that point, I don't blame them, to be perfectly honest. So they were really doing their best to be patient, let me have time in there. We get to a point where there is a line and it says like, you know, you will wait 15 minutes at this point to get to the head of the line. It feels like Disneyland. And I realized the reason it feels like that is that it's a ride. And and my kids got so excited. And I think that's the point of it. I think why in a public history sense, it's so well done. I think that's kind of the point, you know, in the middle of the full experience, you have this very physical thing that breaks it up. And you get a sense of, well, I should say what it's first, is first. You get into these cars that are suspended from a cable. And you sort of ride up through a couple of floors on these little cars through the construction process of Titanic. And it's very immersive. There are the sounds of the clanging. There is smoke. There is the heat of furnaces. And it is. It's very much like a ride at an amusement park, except it is designed by historians 
and experts of public history, and you can tell down to painstaking detail. And you get a sense of the massive foundation, some of the stuff we talked about earlier. You know, the like the ribs of this vessel, the rivets going in, you know, how men would have been positioned and hanging off of things. You get a sense of how hot it would have been, how hard and backbreaking the work would have been to put these rivets in. And I really think that as we modernize the way we present and consume history, we have to be open-minded to things like this. And it was so well done. My kids had fun, but they also learned something. And isn't that what we're trying to do? So it was it was so respectful, so well done. It was it, it sort of blew my mind. Uh, there are there's a set of windows on a an upper floor of the museum that go straight down into the slipways that Titanic and Olympic were built on. So you look out to Belfast Lock, you see the entire Titanic quarter, and of course, you know, then right there in front of you, this spot where Titanic and Olympic were built and launched from. I don't know. I could have stood there for hours. I didn't get to because of my kids. But yeah, I mean, it was the place that, you know, a little past noon on May 31st, 1911, Peary gave that signal and Titanic glided into the water for the first time into the Lakin. And the River Lakin, uh, I didn't know much about it, is a major river. Uh, it runs 53.5 miles from the Sleeve Krub Mountain in County Down to. Belfast, where it enters right there. So yeah, it's, you stand in front of these windows and you get a sense of all of this. Now, during the launch, there was a man named James Dobbin. You've probably heard this story if you're a big Titanic person who had worked in the shipyard. He was hit by some falling lines that came off the ship as it glided into the water. And he died shortly after the launch, unfortunately, at Royal Victoria Hospital. That's one of the most tragic tales to come out of the building. Now, we also did the walking tour uh, in Titanic Belfast. It is a separate ticket. Like when you purchase your tickets to the museum, your ticket covers the whole museum building and the nom- and going to see the nomadic But the walking tours are a separate thing. And one of the tour guides from the museum, ours was great. I wish I could remember his name. He was so fantastic. Uh, We'll take you through the walking paths of Titanic Quarter and give you kind of some more information about the workers, about the Harlan and Wolf processes and how things worked. And we'll also, you know, go over the design of the building of Titanic Belfast and all of the symbolic uh, bits that they have you know, put into the architecture of the museum itself. So it's very much worth it, in my opinion. Uh, and then the nomadic is next. We went the um, later in the afternoon, we took a little bit of relaxation time. And, and that's the beauty of Titanic Quarter is if you're a Titanic person and you're going to do all of this, you can park your car in the underground garage and you don't have to move it. And you can stay at Titanic Hotel have drinks and dinner, walk over to the museum, walk over to Nomadic, do the walking tours of the docks. It's, I mean, it's kind of perfect. So we went into the Nomadic, which was one of the things I was most looking forward to. If you don't know what the Nomadic is, it was one of the tender ships that took passengers from Cherbourg 
over to Titanic because Titanic was too big to anchor right in the port. So these tender ships would take passengers out to large ships like Titanic. Nomadic was one of two ships that the White Star Line built in 1910 to tender for the new liners like Olympic and Titanic. The sort of mate of of Nomadic was the SS Traffic, which was also a ferry ship. So Nomadic was built by Harland and Wolfe on slipways right there in Belfast and was launched in April of 1911 and delivered to the White Star Line as part of these contracts. It's 230 feet long and 37 feet wide. It has a tonnage of 1,273. It has two single-ended coal-fired boilers and two compound steam engines, and it can achieve a speed of 12 knots. And the reason I'm talking in present tense is it obviously still exists, which is so cool. Uh, let's see here. So there were are uh, lower and upper decks for passenger lounges and then like open deck areas were sort of hanging out. And it was divided into first and second class passenger areas and third class would have been on traffic, not on nomadic. It was designed to look like Titanic. It was designed to be a seamless experience. You walk onto Nomadic and you already get a sense uh, from the carpet and the wood paneling and the staircases. You were supposed to, you know, you're a first or second class passenger. You paid a lot of money to be boarding these ships. And that's where the experience started. You got a drink, you hung out at the bar, your luggage had been put on Nomadic and would be put on Titanic by somebody else. You were paying for that first class experience, even in this Tinder situation. So, a lot of people have said this, and it really is true. You know, to walk onto the nomadic, even though a lot of it's, I mean, most of it's been refurbished and redone. It's not the original interior. But when you walk onto it, it's like the closest you're ever going to get to being on Titanic. And I want to play a little recording for you. I forgot. I actually, I think I did a little voice note from nomadic too. Here we go. So, Lorelai, do you remember what's the name of the ship that we're on right now? The smaller ship? Nomadic. So we're sitting on the benches, which I'm... In case you didn't get what mommy said. (laughs) Um, I'm guessing they are not the original in any way because we're allowed to sit right on them. Uh, We just learned that the Nomadic used to be at the Eiffel Tower for a spell and was used as a sushi restaurant. Also, it was a nightclub in the 70s. So I think a fair bit of restoration had to be done to bring it back to looking like a White Star Line ship. But the restoration is really beautiful. Four million pounds to restore it. You, the museum will just let you walk right on. They're, they have the outer decks closed right now because they're painting, which I'm kind of sad about. I would have loved to have stood on the decks. Uh, it's hot in here. There's, I don't think there's any AC. Uh, it's really cool. We're about to walk around. All right, you guys say bye. Bye, bye. And in case you didn't get what I said and mommy said, well, I'll say it again. I'm Lorelai. <laughs> so Nomadic has a really interesting history after Titanic. And, you know, it's known as this 
small ship that had the asters on it, that had the, you know, Sir Cosmo Lady Duff Gordon on it, who had, you know, Archibald Butt and Margaret Brown and Benjamin Guggenheim on it. But it it didn't sink. So it went on to have this really long and interesting life, if you can call a ship, you know, having a life, which I guess it does. So during World War One and until 1919, it was used by the French government and saw service. And it was used to ferry troops uh, to and from harbors. And after that, she was used as a tender ship again. After 1934, with the merger of White Star and Cunard, and there was a um, a larger port opened at Cherbourg, the this tender situation wasn't needed anymore. Uh, so during World War II, uh, she was used in service again. In World War II, though, she was used in service again, and then returned to tendering duties for the Queen Mary and the Queen Elizabeth after World War II. So, I mean... She's like they have <laughs> she I'm calling ships she again. Um they have this one little exhibit on nomadic where it has pictures of all the famous people that were on nomadic over the years and it's like Elizabeth Taylor, like people like that. You know, like like celebrities into the 20th century that would have been on the Queen Mary or the Queen Elizabeth were on nomadic. So it's not just the celebrities from Titanic, but also from all the way up until the 60s. Uh so then it gets even more interesting. So she's been renamed at this point. The Ingenieur Minard is her name, but she ends up being purchased by an individual, just like a private individual. And she, she nomadic, Ingenieur Minard at this point, was turned into a floating sushi restaurant and at one point a disco, we heard, although I didn't see any info on that online, uh, and it was on the Seine in Paris. So it's on the river as a sushi restaurant. That happened. <laughs> so weird. But it's all part of this crazy story that leads to her not ever being scrapped, right? So it's amazing. Uh, so in 1999, though, that business nomadic as sushi restaurant uh, declined and the ownership went to the Paris Harbor authorities in 2002 and then a group of heritage and maritime activists in Belfast uh, and also like the French Titanic Society and some other organizations as well caught wind of that and started a campaign to raise funds to purchase and, and rename her back to Nomadic, obviously, so that she could come back to Belfast. So that's what happened. And she was returned to Belfast on July 12th of 2006 as part of this you know, building of Titanic Quarter, this huge rejuvenation project. It, it worked out perfectly. And it really is it was one of my favorite parts of the whole trip to Ireland or Northern Ireland. It was incredible to be sitting in a place that some of the Titanic passengers set. Again, it does. It feels like the closest thing you're going to ever get to being on Titanic. Uh, we, My husband got so mad because we accidentally, well, I claimed it was an accident, but I pretty much did it on purpose. We It was very confusing which doors you could go in and not. And there was one door that didn't have a sign. And I sort of knew we probably shouldn't go that low, but we went kind of low down into the engine room and got to see some of it. Uh, and then my husband realized we were probably breaking a rule and was so mad. 
but it's really cool. They, they were painting it when we were there, so we weren't able to go on the outside decks. Uh, the paint was being redone. I was sad about that. I wish I would have been able to. Uh, so yeah, it was, you know, Titanic Quarter was and is, I hope for you when you get to go, just this immersive multi-day experience. We we didn't really feel comfortable driving in Belfast because it's such a big city. So we didn't see much of Belfast other than Titanic Quarter. That was a very purposeful decision on our part. We did take a cab one night into the city and had dinner. But uh, yeah, it was just, I, I can't speak enough to how wonderful an experience it was. And really one of my favorite parts was a solo walk that I took on our last day there. And I left my husband and kids at the hotel, which they were very happy to be relaxing with the Nintendos. And I want to play, the audio may not be great because it was originally recorded as part of my Instagram posts, but I want to play you the recording that I made as I was walking. Um, Yeah, here we go. I'm going to turn the camera around in a minute and uh, I'm sure you're much more interested um, in the scenery than my face, but just wanted to say hi. Uh, Thank you for following along on our travels. I'm going to do a lot more when I get home and I get to work on all these episodes about our travels. But for today, I just wanted to show you on a beautiful Thursday afternoon, just Titanic corner in Belfast. So hold on and, and go to the next story. All right, so I've walked down to a little pier right here, and you can see the shipyard, dockyard. You can see some ships out in the distance. Uh, Right up there um, is Titanic Studios, where they have done CGI work and a lot of filming, uh, green screen filming for Game of Thrones. There is a set over there that is a Game of Thrones set. I don't think I'm going to get a good uh, picture on that on this video. It's sunny too, but uh, you can see the Harlan and Wolf cranes um, right over here where my finger is pointing uh, is Titanic Hotel Belfast. Amazing. Uh, right in front, of course, is Titanic Belfast. All of the four points of the building are designed to obviously look like uh, the front of a ship, and they are done to are, you can really look up and get a sense of exactly what it would have felt like to stand under Titanic and look up at its bow. Uh, and if you're like me, imagine Jack and Rose there, of course. Um, then you have, of course, right in front of me, the two dry docks. So the one on the right is Titanic. The one on the left is Olympic. These still girders are not original. They were put up just about 10 years ago. But what's amazing is, and before I do that, I'll give you one more little view the the water and the ships Um, but what's amazing is that they have left an outline of the ship so that you can see the silver there we go back of Titanic and as you follow it it gives you the outline of the ship all the way to the bow which uh, lands you right near the museum Uh, the white lines though it's amazing uh, give you a sense of the near the museum. Uh, The white lines, though, it's amazing, uh, give you a sense of the decks, circle ones are where the funnels were, so it's pretty incredible. All right, 
it's it really is a beautiful day we've been so lucky on this to have the weather that we've had there you go there's belfast on the thursday afternoon all right again sorry for the audio quality on that not being great but yeah i mean and and in that in that it's a video on instagram so you can actually you can go on my instagram unsinkable pod and see those actual videos they're under the travel um uh highlights but what's incredible is that they have positioned the outline of the ship to line up directly with a railing so you walk out to this railing over Belfast Lock and you are essentially standing on what was the stern of Titanic your where Rose was uh so it's you know it's just so moving and you you walk by the wall the memorial walls have the names of the passengers and the crew and yeah I just if you're a Titanic person I think this is the place I think that you know it's was the most important place that I went to on this trip in terms of Titanic. So there is a walk in Belfast. Thank you for listening. As always, I have a lot more coming soon. I have a Charles Jockin episode coming. Very excited about that. Uh, a unsinkable side series episode on the endurance, Ernest Shackleton. That'll be fun. And then next month, too, looking ahead to the launch of a new podcast from me called Mythic Americana. And it's going to be like a little spooky, a little bit of, you know, dark, some darker elements of history, some lost elements of stories about iconic places places we're obsessed with for whatever reason in this country, places that become shrouded in mystery, uh, sort of an examination of why we're obsessed with mystery in terms of history in this country. I'll be looking at my very first set of episodes will be on the lost colony of Roanoke. I'll be looking at places like Myrtle's Plantation in Louisiana. I'll be looking at historic homes around the country. I'll be looking at battlefields. I'll be looking at port cities. Uh, there will probably be some more naval history and shipwrecks in there somewhere too. But lots to come. And if you have a suggestion of something to cover, please let me know. I have not figured out the logistics of how I'm going to run like Twitter and Patreon. I have started a separate Instagram for Mythic Americana, and that's just at Mythic Americana. I have not decided if I'll do a separate Twitter. I think Twitter may just sort of meld into Unsinkable Studios and cover a little bit of everything that I'm publishing and doing. Uh, and then Patreon for right now will just stay Unsinkable. Eventually, maybe I'll make that for both or make a separate one for Mythic Americana, but don't worry about anything in terms of that yet. If you are a patron of Unsinkable, that's just what that is, and Unsinkable is going to continue to publish the same I always have. Uh, two episodes a month is always the plan. Sometimes it ends up being a little more than that if I have extra time, uh, but yeah, uh, so bi-monthly. And Mythic Americana, I'm not sure. I I Maybe just like one series a month, so maybe I'm thinking like at the beginning of each month, there'll be 
a topic that's released and it might have two or three parts, but I haven't ironed everything out yet. I do have a really exciting series of episodes on Roanoke coming first. I just lined up a guest to come on that is one of the foremost experts on it. So super excited. Um, oh, also spooky season unsinkable episode coming at the end of October, kind of a little bonus episode, book club episode with Adriana Mather, who wrote Haunting the Deep, which is a YA novel that revolves around Titanic. I did some giveaways on my Insta for the book because I was really excited. And so a couple of you got your hands on that through the giveaway, but I highly recommend giving it a read and then tuning in. And that episode should be live the week of Halloween. So that'll be my spooky season episode this year. What else? What else? I just, I continue to be astounded by the support. Uh, Thank you to all of my Patreon members. I have a Patreon meetup on October 23rd, 2022, if you're listening to this in real time. So if you're a Patreon member and you want to come to it, it's just going to be a Q&A. No pressure, but let me know uh, on Patreon if you plan to attend. And just I keep reading and I keep researching and there's always more. And I am so excited to bring episodes to you. I'm excited about a lot more to come over the rest of this fall and winter. I have a lot of content based around the 25th anniversary of the movie coming your way. I think it's no shock that I'm excited about that. So yeah, I just I just want to say I'm thankful to be a podcaster. I'm thankful to be your host and your researcher for this. I do it with respect and solemnity in every second that I work on anything related to Titanic. And I thank you for being along for the journey. As always, you can find me on Unsinkable Pod. Uh, handle uh, Twitter and Instagram. My my brain is a little broken. I'm sorry, that made no sense. Find me on Instagram at unsinkablepod. Find me on Twitter at unsinkablepod. Uh, you can always shoot me an email, unsinkablepod at gmail.com. And lastly, if you are enjoying the podcast and you have a couple of minutes, it's always so appreciated if you could jump on either Apple or or on Spotify and rate and review the pod. It helps visibility of the pod and it helps me to continue to grow the pod, which will help me in the long run be able to keep the pod going. So it's a, you know, it's all part of the same process, which is I want to be able to keep Unsinkable and Mythic Americana going for a long time to come. I love doing this. It's so fun. And I love hearing from all of you. So keep those messages coming. Make sure to follow on socials and talk soon. Bye guys.